Thank you for joining me on this episode of DesignWise. I'm your host, Jessica Shabbat. Today, my guest is Michael Ferzoko, the owner of Eleven Interiors. Eleven Interiors is an award-winning Boston-based design firm. Like some of our previous guests, Michael did not start out in the design business, but arrived there with an accomplished knowledge of how to run a business and what kind of company culture he wanted to foster. Almost 15 years later, he has built an amazing team that is regularly featured in publications and well-known for their style and point of view. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, Michael. Good to see you today. How are you, Jess? So you just told me something really interesting, so tell me your full name. My full name yeah, is... Yeah, middle name too. Yeah, okay. It's uh, Michael Luciano Ferzocco. That is awesome. Mm. <laughs> very, very Italian. Very Italian background. So where did you, speaking of that, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Boston, Boston proper, but in the, specifically the Roslindale neighborhood of Boston. So we had a huge piece of land, believe it or not, for a city dwelling. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to the point where we had, we had more than 400 tomato plants. We had wow. chickens. We had all kinds of vegetables. So huge garden. A farm in the city. Basically, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and my me and my ten brothers, my nine brothers, worked it. Wow! With so my how dad. many of, of you are there all together? Seventeen. Seventeen kids. Seventeen kids. That's amazing. Yeah. You don't hear about that very much. And no. you guys are still pretty close, right? Yeah, we're all very close. We um, we all live within thirty minutes of that house because wow. my mom, at ninety three, still lives in that house. That's amazing. Yeah, we see her all the time. Wednesday is my night with mom. Yeah, so last night was, you know, dinner, and it's great. She has more energy than I do, but 93, she, she's... Do you listen to this podcast? Sure. Oh, what yeah. is Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. <laughs> You're the best. They don't make them like you anymore. Very sweet. <laughs> so you guys, so how many of your siblings, since there's 17 of them, are anyone, is anyone else in design? No. None. Unfortunately. You're the um, only one. I'm the only one. Do you ever work for your family? Yes, several times. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it's 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 turned out really well. That's you know? good. You don't have no, to go here about that very often. <laughs> no weird finan- uh, family uh, dynamics or anything like that. Nothing. It's really unusual. We're lucky. We're very lucky. So yeah, one of my sisters lives in Wellesley, um, another in Weston, another in Milton, and they all have some beautiful properties. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've worked on them all over the years, over the past thirteen years that we've been in business. Do you all have the same style, or do they have, do no. they have very different, vastly different styles? Vastly different styles, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like any client. Yeah. When, when, you, um, when you're approached for a project, uh, the true challenge is, is getting into that client's head and into their space. So how do they live? What do they like? What do they not like? And trying to figure out how you can bring their dreams to reality. It may not be your style, but how can we do this really, really well um, and, and make this client happy mm-hmm. and feel comfortable in their own environment? Um, and, and the challenge is definitely doing something that you may not want to do, but it is the client's home and you're, you're accommodating. Right, so it's good customer service Absolutely. With, with your family. Absolutely. Right. Yes. But you did not always do design as, as a profession, right? You did I did not. No, my, my dad, um, when I told him I wanted to be an architect, he, he 
he refused <laughs> to let me be an architect. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we had a big family, so dad wasn't paying for us to go to college. Mm -hmm. You were working and paying for it yourself. You can't, no, 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 no. I mean, and even back then, you know, it was a lot less expensive, yeah, but, but still, still, just yeah. the sheer volume, mm -hmm. the number of, of children, because my dad was, um, he was, um, education was very, very important to him. Mm -hmm. He came from nothing, but he went to school for 14 years to get three master's degrees. Wow. When it went nights, was having children, was building a family, uh, would come home at night at nine, 10 o'clock and needed to write a paper. And my mother and he would sit at the kitchen table and type the paper wow. at you know midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and then up at five, out to work, taking care of children, with, you know whoever's responsibilities were what. Um, so they really, they worked really hard and they pushed hard. And my father used to say, if you want it bad enough, you'll work full time and pay for yourself to go to school at night. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't do that. I, I did go full time days, but I listened to him and I, I went into a um, financial career as my first career. So I went to Boston College and double majored in finance and accounting. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. And then... Um, Worked for a while in corporate finance, and what they paid for me to go back and get my master's degree in, in international finance and economics. Um, and then I ended up in Europe, uh, working for L'Oreal for a while, and I was just surrounded by incredible design and architecture and a whole different way and of being. You, so you always liked design always, and Always, always. You just didn't go into it because your father was basically like, that's not a real he totally poo-pooed it. Yeah. He said not, that, you're not the only one that's told me that, actually. A lot of, really? That generation, I think, they didn't Very see likely. architecture as a real Serious. career. Yeah. Like, art, like saying you wanted to do art. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, he just didn't think I would make money. Mm -hmm. And he thought I was bright, and he wanted me to have a more secure future because mm -hmm. his was so tenuous, mm -hmm. you know? And, that's um, a very normal and admirable way to feel. I think so. Especially, you, you know, as a dad, you want yeah. your kids to be, More yeah, as a parent, absolutely, mm -hmm. and have a better life than what yeah. you've had. Um, so it was coming from a good place. It was, it really was. And it was great advice, actually, because um, when I did finally wake up to what I really wanted to do and start to pursue, you know, the true intention from the very beginning, um, I had the financial means to do it mm -hmm. and, and not work while I pursued a... Um, a design um, formal education mm -hmm. with an architecture minor and make $20 an hour working part-time. Right. So, you know, I had the backing, financial backing, to be able to do that and devote several years to that. And so how old were <clears> you <throat> around? You don't have to tell me exactly, but what, around what age did you I was in my, my late 30s. Yeah. Yeah. So you already had a pretty successful financial career at that point. I did, yeah. People thought I was crazy. Yeah, sure. Leaving, especially at that... At that time in your career, mm -hmm. with a master's degree and the, the background that I had, you know, you're really poised to <clears throat> to take off on this incredible trajectory in that world. Um, but I, I just didn't like it. Every day, going to work, I just didn't like it. I did it, and I was doing a great job, and there were, there were obviously lots of uh, potential opportunities in the future, but... I couldn't see myself working another 30 years in a, in a field that I wasn't happy in. Now I come to work and the days fly by and you know I wish I had 
30 hours in a day because I can't get through everything and it's do you, great. Do you think that your um, background in all the financial stuff is really, or I guess the better question would be, in <clears throat> what way do you think that that experience has really benefited you in this career? I can think of a lot of ways, but I'll let you answer it. I think, you know, very, very top line is that I've come to realize over the years um, more and more that no matter how much money people have, um, budgets are very important to them. And we approach design with their uh, financial sensibilities um, at the forefront as well as their aesthetic sensibilities. And, um, you know, when they, when they give us a number and we allocate that number across the spectrum of their project, uh, we really try to stick to it. And if we're not sticking to it because of changes, change orders in the design, um, or a client likes a specific chandelier as opposed to another chandelier and it's $5,000 out of budget, we immediately let them know. So there are no, never any financial surprises um, on our projects. And um, we're constantly updating the budget and sending it to the client so that they know, hey, you're not at $500,000 anymore. You're at you know, $530,000 or $580,000 or whatever the case may be. Um, but we don't like surprises and we don't like to um, create any kind of, we don't like secrets like that that create conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and I think clients look at them as, you know, poor communication if you're, look at those issues as poor communication if you're not communicating where they are. Because at one point you had a conversation and they told you where they wanted to be. And, and then, these projects have so many moving parts mm -hmm. over so many months that they can lose sight of those things. They're, they're expecting somebody to keep track. And that's us. Mm -hmm. That's us. And your, how does your process work um, at Eleven Interior? It seems, we talked a little bit before, but it seems, your process feels a little different to me than like a lot of your contemporaries. Do you think that's accurate? or? Um, I think that I think that maybe it was in the beginning. Maybe it still is. I, I honestly don't know because it's it's just our process and how we how we how we um, develop a project. Um, I don't know what other firms do because I am not there and I'm not privy to those inside inside uh, that inside information. But um, for us, it's it's the, you know the process is is really very transparent. Um, clients know exactly what we're billing them for. They know that they need to give us deposits for certain items before we buy those items um, in, on their behalf. Uh, they know that we have a certain markup and they can ask us for vendor invoices at any time and compare them to our invoices and they'll see that percentage markup is to the penny. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that, I think that from the very beginning, we've just been very transparent. I, I don't want to have to remember some story that I made up about something uh, with this client or that client and, and try, to, try to figure out, oh my God, what was this or what was that? Um, it's, just, it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how other design firms run their, run their projects, but for us, it's always been right on the table. When a client comes in and they sign up 
to work with us, we literally review the contract together and we go section by section so that they know this is what we're billing you hourly. During the construction phase, we're billing you a percentage and that, that percentage is even, an even percentage monthly based on the construction costs. Uh, so that you're getting a $5,000 bill or a $10,000 bill, whatever that construction budget might be. But in the, initial, in the initial stages, when we're in the design stages and we're doing drawings, we're billing hourly. While we're meeting with them in those initial stages and we're reviewing uh, products and materials that are going to go into that renovation, we're billing hourly. And then we have basically a three-ring binder Bible, if you will, construction documents that gets passed off to the contractor um, to build from. And every specification is in there, every drawing is in there, construction starts, we're doing site visits, we're working with the contractor and, and uh, modifying drawings if we need to. But at that point, once construction starts, we're on it basically a monthly retainer. Yeah, you guys are very Management detail fee. oriented. Your yeah. whole process is very clear. We try I've to be. I've always been struck by how incredibly honest you are, and it's very refreshing, and there's not a lot of, like, you know, no, there's not BS that goes along none, with it. It's just no. what you say is what you mean is a good quality. That's it. Thank you. We try to just be completely upfront, you know, and develop nice relationships with people. We want to work with people who understand and appreciate what we do. Um, and they're respectful of what we do and respectful of our time and, and the effort that goes into creating these environments for them. What kind of projects do you guys like to work on? Do you have some that are your favorites? Like where you're just like, oh yeah, I love doing those types of projects. Um, <clears throat> It's funny, we, we, we're always doing construction projects. Mm -hmm. It is really the bulk of our work and sometimes we don't even get to the decoration end of it. Mm -hmm. But doing the decoration end can be so refreshing. It feels so easy. There are far fewer moving parts. You know, there are so many components, as you know, uh, going into a construction project. Just the level of detail, the drawings, the, the um, you know, the components you've got wall-mounted faucets and certain drains and you know uh, vessel bowl sinks and exposed plumbing or you know electrical issues given all of the uh, changes that have occurred in low voltage and led and uh etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know there's there's a lot to think about there but when it comes to the decoration it can be incredibly refreshing and um i'd say that i'd say that our our, our most favorite projects are um, those where the client has a really good understanding of what they're looking for and they're not afraid to put forth the budget for it. That's good. So yeah, it really is. It, it really helps us to uh, design it um, to the nines, if you will. Mm -hmm. And whether that be just that we're involved in the, the actual interior design and construction phase or if we're involved in the interior decoration in the final stages. Um, and I always advise clients to do any construction, put, put the bulk of their, of their budget into the construction because we could fill a space with beautiful furniture and fabrics and rugs and lighting, but if the space isn't right, mm -hmm. none of that stuff is ever going to be right in that space. And where is the bulk of your work um, in this area? Do you guys do mostly stuff in Boston or... In the suburbs? Yeah, Boston and the, and the greater Boston area. So we, we do work a lot in Wellesley, Lexington, Concord. Um, we've had projects on the Cape, but we don't have a project now. 
on the Cape. We didn't have a project last year on the Cape. Um, but we've worked in other cities, Savannah, LA, um, That's cool. New York. How do you get those kinds of projects? Primarily from um, <clears throat> you know, a social network, um, from a client network. I had a client that moved to Savannah. They were only supposed to be there temporarily. They kept their place in Boston. They moved to Savannah, bought a property. They were going to be there for three years. We did that property. Uh, it was a temporary situation, according to them. And then they decided their kids were growing up. They were developing friendships, you know, both the parents and the kids. And then they didn't want to pull the kids out of the school systems. So they decided to stay, and they decided to build a property instead. So we were involved in a large construction project in Savannah after doing their first house in Savannah. Uh, it was a real challenge. It was great, though, but it was a real challenge. So in something like that, what is that far away? How often do you have to go there? Um, at some points, it was every other week wow. during construction. Yeah. Because as you know, things start happening, yeah. and they start happening quickly, um, especially during the finishes. Mm -hmm. So I would go down there every other week and stay for a week. Mm -hmm. uh, there were times when I would just fly down and fly back in the same day. Wow. Um, but during, during the bulk of construction and framing and what have you, it was going down maybe once every three weeks, once a month. Um, but a really fun project, great client. They understood exactly what they wanted. They were willing to spend the money to get it. And, um, and you know, they challenged us to, to come up with some interesting options for them. So it was basically a, a, a takeoff of a plantation home in the low country. Um, really, yeah, really gorgeous. Savannah, you think of like all those, you know, exactly that, like the big columns in the front, the yeah. wide porch. Yeah, exactly. And and that was it. That was it. Willows. Big plantation shutters and the willows and the oaks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, really sort of ethereal in many ways, especially the landscape. Would you consider your style to be a little bit more on the modern side? Definitely. Personally, yes, definitely. So and how do you, um, when you're working on, say, a more historic property and its client's tastes are a little bit more modern, which I think is great, how do you kind of marry the two? Do you have a way you do it or you just kind of do what feels right? Um, yeah, you have to do what feels right. You go with your gut, basically. A lot of instinct goes into this. But, um, you know, when a client has a more modern sensibility and they're doing a home that's, that feels very traditional, architecturally, there are some things that we can do that will help to modernize it, for instance. We could um, you know, use some really big, oversized lighting at a, at a kitchen island or at a dining table, as opposed to going with a traditional um, blown glass chandelier type of fixture, for instance. Um, <clears throat> in bathrooms, you can do a traditional vanity, except float it. Uh, maybe it sits on a big pedestal base instead of having a toe kick and going wall to wall. So maybe it goes to the floor, but it floats between the left and right walls. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some, some really nice modern sensibilities that we can just bring in, even in hardware, cabinetry hardware, lighting fixtures, um, tile layouts, um, even if you're doing a more traditional tile. Um, um, and in furnishings, you know, there's, I, I like to bring in a nice mix. So in any project we do, we like to have a mix of, um, of antique and vintage furniture, mm -hmm. um, as well as contemporary furniture, and maybe some custom pieces, depending on the spaces. 
So it makes a room feel like it's been very well thought out, very well considered, and, and that these pieces have been collected over time and they've been brought together and, and mixed appropriately. And I think a lot of our decoration work, a lot of the problem with decoration work these days is um, getting the mix right. Mm -hmm. And I think that even though design is, has gone to the streets, I mean, it is, right? Everybody has access to everything anymore. There is right. no exclusivity. And you know, I know that there are some... Uh, it's almost gone like, completely the other way. Because I feel like if people think you know, furniture is so disposable. Totally. Like, they just don't want to invest in something that is, you know, worth investing. They don't see it as a long-term investment. It's right. really, I think, it's almost gone negatively in the opposite direction. It has. Like, people think stuff, you can just... It really has. Buy whatever, and then, oh, well, if it doesn't last, because I'm going to redecorate in, yeah. you know, like two uh, years. Or I'm, I'm moving. Yeah. And, and it's not going, it won't fit over. in the next right. space, right? Uh, or it won't be the right thing for the next space. And all you have to do is move once or twice, mm -hmm. and you know that that's exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, that seven-foot sofa doesn't fit in this larger living space now. Right. Now I need to supplement it with something else. Oh, well, now my style is X, and the, the other pieces that I like don't really work with that sofa. Mm -hmm. And they start getting, you know, there's, there's all this confusion and doubt that starts creeping in, which is where we come in to, um, to create that mix. You know, maybe use some of the pieces that you have. Maybe reupholster something, um, and and make it work with other new pieces that you want to acquire to fill that larger space or that smaller space. You're downsizing. Right. It's a different. You know, you're going in the opposite direction. But it is design is in the streets, and that's part of you know getting back to our transparency. That's part of why you just have to be that way. Anybody can find anything on the internet. They can walk into these showrooms, certainly. Some of them may not sell directly to the public, but you can walk into the showroom, you can see what the retail value is of a particular item, and um, how could you charge, how does, how does any firm get away with charging over retail for anything? I don't understand it. Why would anyone in the general public, no matter how much money you have, pay more for that item if you could buy it directly yourself? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. But the design world used to be that way. You know, designers got a certain discount and then they, they just had a standard markup that they would mark these items up to. And whether that hit retail or was over retail didn't matter. This is my process and this is how I do things and, and the client would end up paying more than retail. It's just, just baffling. Uh, we'll, we'll say decorators. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's just because, like in the past, people that were traditionally thought as decorators of doing furnishings really didn't necessarily know how to run a business? Maybe. As as much, I'm not saying all. Right? Yeah. They didn't run a brush. Yeah. But I really feel like, uh, like to your experience, that you see a lot more people that have backgrounds in business doing interior design and architecture now, and they, you know. People have, clients have so much information and they know how much stuff costs. Yeah. And so you can't really run a company, a successful one, like the way it used to go, where right. people had no idea and so they just wrote a check. Right, they did. It's now exactly you right. have to explain the time. It's almost like you're charging for your time as opposed to the item. Is that very accurate? true? Very true, very accurate. I think people are a lot more pragmatic mm -hmm. these days. And, um, and, Though there's certainly a lot of creativity involved in what we do in our industries, 
yours, mine, um, and there's a lot of overlap. I think that um, the client, the end user, is just far more aware. They have way more um, information at their disposal. So they're far more aware of what's going on and, and what their expectations should be and the questions they should be asking. Um, they're not they're not approaching this in a vacuum or in the from the dark, you know. Um, and I think an educated client is is our best client um, because it helps them to understand also what we do and and it helps them to understand the value of things, um, items that we're using for their projects. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that? Like, do you like to, like, if somebody has a really strict budget, or do you guys, how do you tackle a project like that when it, there's not, like, an unlimited budget and someone has a very, you know, strict and maybe more modest yep. allotment? Um, you, the how does that work for you guys? The same way we approach any project. Mm -hmm. um, everybody has a wish list, and there's a project scope, and there's a budget, and we we take that scope based on detailed discussions we take that scope and we put it into a line item budget and we say we're renovating a bathroom these are all of the components that are going to go into that renovation of that bathroom and then we're providing you with furniture for a living space and a bedroom mm -hmm. let's say it's a one bedroom apartment and let's say there's a hundred thousand dollars for that work um, seventy five thousand dollars for that work well this is how we're allocating those funds. Um, you know, we're not going to tile the entire bathroom. We're, we're not even tiling the floor. We're gonna bring the wood flooring into the bathroom. Uh, it's a less expensive installation. It's a less expensive material. We're gonna do beautiful tile in the uh, shower, tub shower area only. Uh, and the client might say, well, I really want a tile floor in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's a discussion that we need to have because it's gonna cost X number of dollars more. So. Are we expanding the budget or are we foregoing that particular item? Mm -hmm. um, and we're happy to work with clients on those things, uh, but it's really about communication and making them see what they can get for their money. So you told us you wanted all of these things. You told us that you have this amount of money to spend, and this is how we've allocated it. And maybe some of those items will be less expensive than what we've allowed um, we've allowed for financially. And, and that can work out very well and it works out often that um, maybe a client is spending a little bit more on a sofa or on a, you know, a light fixture or on the tile in their bathroom um, and a little less on the vanity or the faucets or you know, a couple of club chairs or something for that same living room. So there is a high-low game that you can play and a lot of times the the more expensive items are making the less expensive items look expensive. Right. Uh, it's all again. It's all about the mix, it's trick. right? Is it? It's a good trick. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, it comes down to what are the focal points in that particular space. When people walk into it, what are they seeing first? What's impressing them most? Are we spending the right amount of money on those items so that when they do finally discover the other items and/or materials in that space? they're already under the impression that things are expensive here, mm -hmm. right? right? So even that white subway tile is not just the white subway tile from Home Depot, it must be from 
you know, Ann Sachs or some other uh, tiled manufacturer or supplier. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe it is from Home Depot because the faucets were $600 and the shower fixtures that are amazing and gorgeous and that rain head and, you know, all of those items that pop out and, and make that shower look like it's a spa shower, um, they, you know, they really sing and they create a certain impression. But yeah, the tile is just a three by six or a four by eight from Home Depot, who knows? Mm -hmm. That's um, interesting. So, last question for you. Yeah. Um, what do you think is going to be kind of the overarching future of like your company? Like, what are your goals going forward? Uh, our goals are to continue to do uh, some challenging design work and uh, continue to work with clients who are um, understanding of our process and what we do and appreciate what we do and and are respectful of it. Um, we want to have a good time. I'm not here to work 12 or 15 hours a day and not, not laugh and enjoy what I'm doing. Um, you know, it, it's funny. People want to grow their businesses and, and you know, make 10% more this year or do this or do that. And um, for me, it's really nice being a boutique firm that, that has challenging work and a great crew of people that collaborates with me um, and makes me look good, essentially, uh, on these projects. I, I, have to, I have to give them all credit because I would not be able to do 10 or more projects at a time the way we work um, without my team. There's just, there's just no way, you know? So originally when I started this, originally when I started this firm, you know, it was me, and then it was me and a part-time person, and then me and a full-time person, and, and then it grew, you know, now there are seven, seven of us and we're always bringing in an intern to help with the back end. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and it's funny that it's grown that way because the intention was never for it to grow that way. I just wanted to have some design projects and be having a good time and have some billable hours and making some money. And now there's this sense of responsibility for these other people who you know, have a, a livelihood to maintain, right? And they have dreams and goals of their own so you've got to keep the ball of wax rolling. Um, but does it need to get bigger? I don't know. I don't know. How do you, how do you continue to grow a business and, and make it feel tighter and more profitable and be able to share the wealth with everybody through bonuses and, and other um, benefits that you can provide employees? But you know, I don't need to be a $10 million business. Um, I just need to enjoy the work that I'm doing and enjoy the clients that we're working with and, and make sure that, that people are happy and they're having a good time. And then they don't mind being here 10 or 12 or 15 hours a day because it's fun mm -hmm. and it should be fun. I worked in an industry for years every day where I wasn't having any fun and I don't ever want to do that again. Well, so if you it's, don't ever have to do that again. That's right. If it's not fun, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. This was great. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This podcast was sponsored by Hawthorne Builders. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms. Until next time.